You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh, Lord, uh, that you would give us discerning hearts uh, to love and pastor those that you've given us to love and pastor in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the gospel's for Christians. Um, sharing the gospel with Christians. Uh, that, can be, that can mean two, two, there are two ways to look at this. Uh, the first way is, is something that we talk about at the Advent often, which is that the gospel is still for Christians. You never get to a place in your walk with the Lord where you graduate onto something else. It's not as if, oh, the free gift of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, you come to faith, and then all of a sudden you get like to 200, 300, 400 level classes uh, after that. Of course, you, you do grow in the knowledge of His grace and love. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but there's not a point in your time where you're like, well, that stuff is for baby Christians or for non-Christians, and what I really want is uh, something uh, much more advanced. Because you can't really talk about anything uh, more powerful than the gospel. And so there is a propensity, of course, in the church to think that we graduate beyond uh, the gospel. Now, in Anglicanism, we, we don't believe that. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but that's why after uh, we give uh, the declaration of forgiveness, the absolution, uh, what do we do next? What do you hear next other than children screaming? Comfortable words, right? And what are those comfortable words? They're a gospel presentation, right? It's not just the pastor standing up saying, you're forgiven, which is really nice to hear, but don't take it from me. Take it from the Word of God and listen to what God has to say to you. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, If you've lived in this life, this world, for more than five minutes, you need rest. Right? That, that's something that we ought to, that's a verse that we all ought to memorize. Um, and, uh, and of course, all of the, uh, the other verses as, uh, as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, here is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation, the perfect offering uh, for our sins. And uh, so that's, that's our MO, right? That the gospel is for everybody, and even Christians need to hear that. That was, uh, if you go later on in uh, Luke chapter 1, um, from where we were this morning, as I mentioned, when Mary visits Elizabeth, of course, Mary is really weighed down by this news that she is carrying a baby, and rather than receiving judgment and condemnation, she hears from Elizabeth uh, with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Everybody else would want to reject Mary, and yet Elizabeth says, this is the most amazing moment in my life. This, I've never been more honored than that you, this unmarried, pregnant, teenage girl, would come under my roof. Now, what it doesn't say, which I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, happened, is um, 
is that then Mary collapsed in a mess of tears. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you where you, inside, spiritually speaking, you feel unforgivable? And I've talked to uh, a friend of mine who's a pastor in Australia about this recently. Uh, his name is Peter Adam. And, uh, and Peter suffered greatly from depression, especially in the late 1980s. Peter's in his 80s now. And um, in the feeling he had, he, I said, well, what did it feel like? And he said, well, one, it felt like I had gone out in the street and murdered people. But of course, he didn't do that. Do you understand? That's the feeling, this overwhelming sense of guilt, and yet he actually couldn't put his finger on anything he had done to merit the guilt because there actually wasn't anything that he had done to merit the guilt. And so he just walked around constantly feeling overburdened with this sense that not only had he done something wrong, but that there was something wrong with himself. And he said, it was when people would speak the gospel into my life, for God so loved the world, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He said that there was a part of his heart that continued to hold on to the lie that he was guilty and unloved, and yet he said when he would hear the gospel, he said he would fall into a mess of tears, and, and he could do nothing but let go of his hands, uh, let go of the guilt that he was harboring uh, falsely, and, and actually rest in the gospel. And that's really... Let's have number 67. No, 57. Uh, that's really what Charles Wesley is talking about in Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. And it is one of those hymns, I don't know what it, well, I do know what it is, about Charles Wesley's hymns that get me every single time. I get very weepy uh, because he's a real Christian, right? Because his experience is our experience. And um, uh, every eye shall now behold him robed in dreadful majesty. Those who said it not and sold him pierced and nailed him to the tree. Deeply wailing, deeply wailing, deeply wailing shall the true Messiah see. So that kind of gets me geared up, right? At that point, I can feel my, the fingers of my heart beginning to let go of whatever it is that's burdening me. And then I hear those tokens of his passion still his dazzling body bears, calls of endless exultation to ransom worshipers. I mean, I think that that's probably what's going to strike me most when I get to heaven, or please, God, come back before then, um, is that just to glance on his nail-pierced hands and to know what that means. And that's when I completely let go of whatever it is I'm, I'm holding on to. And that's when, um, um, with what rapture gaze we on those glorious scars, and then he finishes it with, with a hymn of praise, yes, amen, let all adore you, high on thine eternal throne, Savior, take the power and glory, take it, claim the kingdom for thine own, Alleluia, alleluia, thou shalt reign and thou alone. So that's a good one. So in that sense, that's the gospel for Christians, right? So that's not just an evangelistic hymn. 
That's a hymn for Christians, right? In fact, he's talking about Christians. And, um, and I think where that hymn gets me to is you're singing it to me? I don't know if you knew that, that, that yes, when we gather together, worship is perpendicular, but it's also horizontal. And we, we're singing to one another as well, and we're reminding one another that, that there's going to come a day where all of us are going to stand together and gaze upon those glorious scars. So we should probably start getting along with one another here uh, so that when we're together. So there's that sense of the gospel is for Christians. If I had it to do over again for this, for this bulletin, I probably would have put Christians in quotation marks because the other way to talk about it is the gospel for people who think that they're Christians. Now again, as I've been saying, I want to be very careful here because if somebody says they're a Christian, I don't think that you should make it your business to be the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department and start to, your own sort of spiritual detective agency to be able to pry out whether or not they're believers or not. But if you're actually in relationship with people and you know them really well, you will know whether or not they're a Christian. And if you're wondering and confused about whether or not they're a Christian, uh, that probably is a good indicator that they may not be Christians as well. Um, And uh, it normally comes up in spiritual conversations, uh, beyond beyond being at the Piggly Wiggly and and someone saying, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. And I've already... No one ever says, says hi to me in the grocery store anymore because they know that I'm going to pray for them in the frozen food aisle. Um, because when I say, oh, I'll pray for you, I never do. I mean, I do, but, you know, I'll forget uh, in that moment, so I just get it out of the way then. Let's pray right now next to the frozen peas. Um, so most people, uh, most people avoid me in the grocery store now. Um, and, um, but beyond that, when you, when you start having spiritual conversations with people, uh, they'll, you know, some people will say funny things like, well, you know, I've always believed that God helps those who help themselves, which is where in the Bible? Nowhere, <laughs> right? Or, or, well, I believe that you're supposed to work, and I, these are all the things I heard growing up in my house. You're to work as if it depended on you and pray as if it depended upon God. Where's that in the Bible? Nowhere. All right, but these sort of maxims have come into our lives um, and people really do begin uh, to believe them uh, and begin to live that way. And so Christianity can easily become a caricature of American religiosity because as wonderful as the American dream is, um, as Deuteronomy tells us, let us not say that we got by our own hand our wealth and our riches. But who has given it to us? God. God has given it to us. And so we have to be very careful about saying, well, um, I am solely responsible. And that doesn't mean that God isn't using you uh, to do those things. But I was talking to Lauren the other day. We have some really dear family friends who are not the sharpest tools in the shed, and yet they have had no problem making money. And it's very discouraging to me. Not that I want to make a lot of money, but I'm just thinking there is no explanation other than Jesus as to why they have any money. Because I wouldn't let them watch my kids for an hour. And it's really hard for us as Americans to, to say that. Um, and in fact, we, um, if, if we do have wealth or anything 
along those lines that we didn't earn for ourselves, whether it's inherited or you made a really wise investment or whatever it is, we're almost apologetic about it. We don't want to talk about it, right? We, um, and yet, uh, if we did earn it, we have no problem talking about it. But we need to come to a place where we realize it all comes from God. And so as you begin to talk with people about whether or not um, where they stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, those things come out. They especially come out too when you start talking about judgment. When you stand before the throne of Christ on that great and terrible day of judgment, and God asks you, why should I let you in to the new heavens and new earth, um, what will you say? That will indicate a lot. If you say, I'm a pretty good guy, I'm a pretty good gal, you know, compared to my neighbor, I'm really great, um, that's an indication that that person is not trusting in Jesus for their eternal security. They're trusting in themselves. And so you can, you can lead them there. Now, here's the hard thing about talking to people who are Christians uh, about the gospel. They know enough to get themselves in trouble. And so you can talk to them about, well, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He died on the cross for you, and he was raised on the third day. And they're like, yeah, 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 I know. Grace doesn't seem so amazing to many of us, and we really take it for granted. Um, Birmingham is going to be the last city that goes the way of secularism, and, and it's remarkable to me. We had some friends over at the house the other night to watch Georgia and Virginia get absolutely pummeled, um, and so that was a spiritual experience. Um, uh, but one of the people at the house was saying to me, they're new friends, and they're like, you know, hey, why don't you invite me to your church? Because if you invite me to church, I'm definitely going to come why don't you come to church with us, right? Um, and I was sort of taken back, but that's kind of the environment that we live in. That If you invite somebody to church, they're probably going to come at least once. Um, elsewhere in America and certainly in places like Europe, um, that's not going to happen. They'll, they'll sort of avoid the issue. And I'm beginning to see that more, a little bit more in Birmingham where people are willing to avoid, are, are more... They're avoiding the issue. I'm like, oh, yeah, that would be really great. Let's not see each other ever again. So, but in our remaining moments, let's talk about how we evangelize people who think that they're believers without being overly judgmental. So it's John chapter 3, which is on page 887 in your pew Bibles. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's, he's a, a ruler of, uh, he's a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. He is the poster child for faith in Israel. He's, he would be considered a faithful man. And not only that, he's showing a real interest in Jesus. Now, that's mainly because Jesus has just cleansed the temple, and the Pharisees are like, I like this guy. This is the kind of religious renewal that we need. But there's still a little bit of uh, hesitation in coming to Jesus, which is why Nicodemus comes to him by night. Right? It, it's a modern thing um, that um, no one used to go out at night. Like all the superstitions about what comes out at night and all of that stuff, uh, that, that stuff was real until what moment in history? 
gas lighting in Paris. When they put gas outdoor lighting in Paris, actually people's mealtimes shifted, people's sleeping habits shifted, uh, and uh, people went out at night. And so in Jesus' day, if you saw somebody out at night, they were up to no good. It would be the equivalent of us seeing somebody scurrying down the street at two in the morning. This is not like, oh, someone out walking the dog at seven at night with a flashlight. This is like, I wonder where that guy's going, because it's probably not good. And so he's out because nobody else is out, and he's gone to see Jesus, and he says, you're a teacher, you're from God, no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is not the trajectory that Nicodemus expected the conversation to go. Uh, Nicodemus expected affirmation. He expected... uh, probably a congratulations of, oh, you got it right. You've, you've absolutely pegged uh, who I am. And the response he gets from Jesus is, Nicodemus, you're spiritually blind. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Actually, he doesn't use uh, second-person language. He uses third-person language. So it's still kind of vague, and Nicodemus isn't exactly sure where he is uh, in this equation. And so Nicodemus says, okay, so how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Totally, totally confused. Part of the issue is Nicodemus' spiritual blindness, that Nicodemus doesn't have eyes to see or ears to to hear. And have you ever been talking with someone about spiritual things and you can say, look, this is as plain as the nose on your face, and yet they don't seem to get it or comprehend it. And then you get a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more aggressive until it becomes sort of a fight and you walk away really discouraged. Let me just say, I've never been able to argue anyone into the kingdom of heaven. That there is a point in time where you realize This person actually doesn't have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. So the very first thing is you begin to pray for them. This is is, uh, William Tyndale's uh, great cry when he was translating the Bible in English and as he was kidnapped and thrown into the fire, his last cry was, Oh God, open the eyes of the king, who was Henry VIII. And years later, Henry's eyes would be opened uh, about the Bible in English anyway. Um, but, but that's the prayer for us, is, oh God, open the eyes of the person who is spiritually blind. And if that's the case, you need to treat them as if they are actually a blind or a deaf person. Meaning you wouldn't say to a blind person as they fall down the steps, how could you not see that? Or the deaf person who's crossing the street with a truck bearing down on them, and they almost get hit, and you say, how did you not hear that? The only way that they're going to be able to see and hear is if God gives them the eyes and ears to see. So we pray to God, God open their ears, open their eyes, but also they need to be guided. 
They need to be shepherded until the point where God actually intervenes. And you pray with expectancy. God, open their eyes. They need to be born again. They need to put off the old and take on the new. They need to have a conversion experience with the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to say, my Lord and my God. Charles Wesley wrote about his own conversion experience in the great hymn, And Can It Be? Right? There long my imprisoned spirit lay, uh, fast bound in nature's night. Mine eye diffu- thine eye diffused a quickening ray, the dungeon filled with light. My chains fell off, my soul was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now, the backstory is that people don't realize that they're in a dark dungeon with chains on. But thine eye, God's eye, diffused a light where all of a sudden they say, oh gosh, I'm in a a dungeon and I've got chains on. And then when they fall off, they have no choice but I'm getting out of here. Right? A different, whole new perspective. A whole new change has taken place. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You have to be born again. And this is not just some sort of evangelical language from the 1970s when Jimmy Carter ran for president. If you're a Christian, you're a born-again Christian. There's no not-yet-born-again Christian. Or you can't say, well, I'm a Christian, but that guy, he's born again, which means he's crazy. Right? He's real serious about his faith, where I'm just an Episcopalian. Right? <laughs> so even Episcopalians have to be born again. And Jesus says, look, I don't understand why this is so confusing to you because this is the history and pattern of the people of Israel. But Nicodemus, at this point, totally lost. How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You're the teacher of Israel. You're the pastor. Do you ever think about that? That it's actually possible for pastors to not be Christians. It's kind of a frightening thought. But here's one. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. Now, his world's getting upended at this point. And Jesus says, if I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What? Like we've moved from, wait a minute, so I've got to be born again. How can I go back into my mother's womb? And now you're talking about snakes. Like are we on Sand Mountain now? What's happening? This is totally bizarre. But of course what Jesus is doing is, okay, you don't understand the nature of God's Spirit opening your eyes, the supernatural intervention of God. You don't understand that. I'll try earthly things. But you don't understand that. But you know what? You're a teacher of Israel, so let's have a little tiny Bible study. And I'm going to quote from you a passage from a story from Numbers, which is, if you remember, during the Exodus, they, uh, the, the Israelites were acting out and grumbling, uh, and so God sent serpents into... Uh, this is a great... We should put this up on the nursery wall. So God put, uh, sent serpents into the camp, and, and they, they were aggressive snakes. And so uh, people get, began to be 
bitten by these snakes, and they were sure to die. And so God said, what I want you to do is fashion a bronze serpent on the rod and place it up so that anyone who looks on that serpent will be healed. They will not die. And Jesus is saying here, I'm the serpent raised in the wood. That was a forerunner of me. That's a shadow, a sign, a type of what I'm going to do on Good Friday. And everyone who looks upon me is to be saved. So the key to the confusion for Nicodemus is Jesus. And then he launches into what is one of the most popular passages uh, in the Bible. Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in, meaning if you think I'm coming for the Romans, you're wrong, but in order that the world might be saved through him, even the Romans are going to get in. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now when is Nicodemus visiting Jesus? At night. You come to me at night People who follow after me do it in broad daylight for all the world to see. Because following after me has real ramifications for your life. You're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so you have no choice but to follow me so that the world can see even in the daytime. And of course, this passage ends um, with no response. Nicodemus doesn't say anything. We just hear that Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside uh, out near uh, John's baptism site. And so Jesus has a way of really putting it on people and is willing to walk away. Our job is really just to pour out the gospel like water and pray that the Holy Spirit turns it into wine. And so I even get very anxious. Someone came up um, to my mom, uh, and she hates when things like this happen because it makes me look good. But um, um, someone came up to her and said, your son led me to the Lord. And I actually don't like that very much either because um, that person in South Carolina came to know the Lord because of the Lord. That, that God intervened in their life. Um, of course, he uses us, broken jars of clay, to carry the gospel where it needs to go. Uh, but my call is not to be successful, it's to be faithful. And that's the call on all of our lives. And you know what, at the end of the day, let's say that Nicodemus really was a believer. And Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus probably would not be incredulous with Jesus but would in fact say, hallelujah, I know that new birth, brother. I mean, think about that. When people share the gospel with you, uh, even on the street, my heart kind of lifts. I don't feel judged. You know, when there's a guy 
uh, down on the, uh, on the corner of 20th and 5th who has a sign that says, Jesus saves. And he, you know, he, he doesn't really engage a lot of people in conversation. I think the clergy of the Advent have probably engaged him more than anybody else. I think, Matt, did you go to lunch with him? Trying to go to lunch, because it turns out he's not a Christian. Just kidding. Uh, he probably is. Um, but, you know, he's out there holding out, up the sign, and, and, and people might think, what a nut. Some people might be embarrassed by it, but every time I see it, I think, that's fantastic. Because he does save. He does save. Now, I would say that his methods are a bit limited. You know, I, I think that, that relationships are, are, are better. But I was also reminded once I went to a conference and there were about 300 people there, and uh, the guy up front was talking about evangelism, and he began to belittle gospel tracts. You know, the things that you see in the restaurant, they're always at Golden Corral. So if you go in the bathroom at Golden Corral, someone has left a gospel track uh, on, the, on the bathroom uh, sink. Or maybe someone has passed one out to you. Inevitably, if you go trick-or-treating in Birmingham, you're going to have five of them in your trick-or-treating bag. Um, and uh, this guy was belittling gospel tracts. He said, after all, how many of you amongst these 300, how many of you have got saved because of a gospel tract? And one man lifted his hand. And man, I felt like a heel. Because I was right there with him. I was like, gospel tracts, they don't work. But you know what? If it converts one person out of 300, I'll hand them out till I fall over. Okay, so that's Nicodemus and how we witness to Christians. A couple minutes for questions. I will say that some people have the gift of this. Uh, I'm looking at Francis Blunt out there and our mutual friend John Guest. I mean, John Guest, who's going to come back for the Lenten series this year, um, I mean, he could read from a phone book with his English accent and everybody falls over praising the Lord, like everybody comes to faith. And um, uh, so I do think that there are people who have the gift, but, but you know what? I bet most of our conversion story is, those of us who have that story, we weren't converted by a John Guest. We weren't converted by an Andrew Pearson. We were converted by a mother, a grandmother, a faithful but quiet Sunday school teacher, a country pastor, somebody like that, um, a friend, uh, a college roommate, um, you. You. All right. Well, let's pray. Unless you want to get the last word, David. Well, I was going to say uh, Ann Chambliss is here, and she was a big part of my coming to faith just because she did pray for me. Mm. And uh, so I do think it's important that we reach out to those people and pray for them. Yeah, I think it's if God can save David Tanner. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I mean, I think David would say that too. Is that I'm a you know, work in progress? Well, that's it. Um, my grandfather. Uh, I'll close with this because it's so stupid. Um, never mind. I'm not going to close it. Let's just pray. Let's just pray. I think we've ended a good place. Oh God, we thank you that your arm is never too short to save. And Lord, uh, we admit that sometimes we're gripped by fear. We don't know where to begin. But Lord, give us the boldness to love people enough to share the gospel with them. Uh, to love people enough to really get to know them, uh, to know where they stand with you. Uh, for, Lord, not only do we want them to have life and life to the full in this life, Lord, we want to rejoice together with them in heaven. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would be in the business of plowing up hard hearts and that the gospel seeds that we sow would take deep root in the lives and hearts of those we love. In Jesus' name, amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.